You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating. I'm your host, Rachel Heinemann, licensed mental health counselor. Each week, we explore the deeper meaning of our relationship with food and our body. I interview experts in the field of eating disorders and psychoanalysis to bring you the answers about why you do the things you do and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. All right, let's get started. Hey, hey, welcome back to the pod. I am so excited that you're here. If it's your first time, welcome, welcome, welcome. If you're a repeat listener, welcome back. Love that you're back. If you haven't done so already, you can join my mailing list to hear a little bit more about what's going on in the practice, in the field of eating disorders, and sometimes journal prompts, space me out prompts if you're not a journal person. So head on over to my landing page, join my weekly newsletter, and you'll have an opportunity over there to respond right back to me so that this can become a two-way conversation. This is episode 41 with Marcy Evans. Marcy's a big deal, so I don't really need to introduce her, but she's a certified eating disorder, registered dietitian and supervisor, and a certified intuitive eating counselor. In addition to her group private practice, Marcy launched an online eating disorder training platform for clinicians in 2015 and co-directs a specialized eating disorder internship at Simmons University. So that's like pretty much one of a kind. In 2018, she received the Professional Integrity Award from the Behavioral Health Dietetics Practice Group of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, which is also a pretty big deal. She has spoken locally and nationally at numerous conferences and media outlets So you've probably heard her before. And if not, I'm so excited to be the first one to share an interview with her. She's also on social media and on her blog. So you can go on her website. We'll share all of these resources at the end. All right, (laughs) let's jump right in. I'm so, so excited for this one. All right, Marcy, thank you so much for doing this. I'm very excited. It's about time and (laughs) this is lovely for me. Maybe before we jump in, Can you share a little bit about you, who you are, what your work is, just, you know, in case somebody hasn't heard about you for some weird reason? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, I'm I'm happy to. I'm so glad that we are, we are together finally having this conversation. Rochelle's being very, very diplomatic. I've been a hard person to, to, um, to get a hold of. And she's been really, really patient and flexible. So thank you because I love having these conversations and I'm happy to share just a little bit about myself. My name is Marcy. I'm a dietitian. I'm based out of Cambridge, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. And I'm really lucky to do work that I love. I um, spend most of my time in various ways, whether it's um, with clients or with supervisees or in um, an academic setting or with you know the development of online courses and things, really just in the realm of food and movement and body image healing in whatever way that can mean lots of things to a lot of different people. But I am someone who was very early on, I was really, really fortunate during my dietetic internship to be randomly assigned to an eating disorder treatment facility, a residential facility out in Long Beach, California. And it was there that I realized that I was interested not in only the science of food. I was certainly interested in the science of food, but in addition to that, really interested in a person's thoughts and feelings and relational experience to food. 
So I get to most days explore the ins and outs and edges of what it means to live in relationship to food and movement and our bodies. And I've been really, really lucky to find different avenues to do that. So I work clinically still in my practice. I have a group practice. I provide clinical supervision. I do a lot with training providers. So I, you know, this is probably fairly well known at this point, but unfortunately nutrition professionals receive sometimes literally zero training in this realm, even up until they become a dietitian. And yet there's such a need and there's such a passion for nutrition professionals to do this work. So I do a lot of, I've developed an online training platform for providers to develop some specialization and I'm really fortunate to be connected with Simmons University, where I'm working alongside my dear friend and colleague, Lisa Pearl, where we have been co-developing and instructing a specialized dietetic internship that focuses on eating disorders. So we That's um, amazing. facilitate yeah, the rotations and teach a couple of graduate level courses. So I keep a busy schedule, but I feel really, really, really lucky, really fortunate that I'm able to do this work that I love in these kind of different realms. I love that. Maybe switching over to our main topic today, then we're talking about sugar addiction or food addiction, whatever you want to call it. And specifically the argument that we get is that if I have a sugar addiction, then I can't possibly entertain intuitive eating or any sort of flexibility with my relationship with food because I have this addiction. So maybe first off, let's talk about what a sugar addiction is well, if we believe that it was a thing, but what is it? And then we can talk about how it might be different from a chemical addiction. Sure, absolutely. Um, this is going to be a rich conversation with a lot that we're talking about. And um, whenever I am invited to give a talk on this topic or to speak about it, there are a couple of things that I like to put out at the front that I think is important to kind of set the stage for this conversation is that while you and I are going to be getting into the science of things and digging into the research, which is interesting and useful and I think important, that to me as a clinician, and I'm sure the same would be said for you, is that nothing is more important to me than my client's experience. That it, my client's experience matters more than what I can point to in a brain scan or in a published research article. And so you and I will be kind of holding the complexity of how do we sort of weave together what we understand from the research while honoring and valuing what a person's lived experience is and not diminishing that, right? Because as we know, what can be experienced and felt as very much like an addiction and is that experience is very real and it's very true. There are different ways to understand what's actually happening inside a person's body from a physiological perspective. And, and there are some different ways to try to understand that. And so I think that's a, that's, you know, a bit of what we're going to be trying to unpack today. So I do not consider myself an addictions specialist. I consider myself to be a nutrition therapist who has developed a deep interest and in understanding to the best that I can, the science and the neuroscience and the neurobiology of what is being explored as food addiction. 
So I do want to overt that from the beginning, you know, that I'm not, I'm not a neuroscientist. I am a dietitian who has scientific training and looks at the research as carefully as I, as I know how to. But generally speaking, there are a lot of different definitions of addiction. In fact, as I was just sort of jogging my own memory before hopping on this call and was looking at sort of how is it defined according to um, the American Society of Addiction Medicine? How is it defined according to, you know, the DSM-5, which is what we think about as, you know, kind of mental health professionals, right? And there, there isn't a singular definition, but generally speaking, we can think about addiction as something that is a medical disease that involves a lot of complex interactions. And those complex interactions include brain circuitry, include genetics, include the environment, as well as a person's unique lived experience. And I think there's a lot more that we're beginning to explore and understand in terms of how trauma changes neurobiology and creates vulnerability for the development of addiction and addictive processes. So that's generally how we think about addiction. And the thing that is difficult at this stage, and you'll each of you will hear me say this so much through today, is that when it comes to quote unquote food addiction or quote unquote sugar addiction, there is far more, far more that we do not know in terms of research than what we do know. And that is something that I just will continue to underscore over and over again is that in my opinion, there can be professionals who are reaching so far beyond what any of the science tells us. And that's where I sort of, I, I personally exercise a lot of caution there. So it's an interesting question. I know I'm a little bit long-winded, Rochelle, so you can interrupt me at any time. No, this is perfect. I think it's a great foundation for context. Okay, great. Just know you can you can always jump in. Don't be shy. Um, oh, I will that, be. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> but right now, there is no established definition of food addiction or sugar addiction. And that's because it's pretty complicated to identify a definition when we don't have some fundamental pieces clarified. So for instance we don't know what the quote unquote substance is that is supposedly addictive. Is it white sugar? Is it highly processed food? Is it, you know, is it white flour? It's, it's so different than we're looking at substance addiction when we're looking at say cocaine or heroin, that food is something that we don't consume in singular substances, right? When we're eating sugar, it's, it's stirred into our pastry or into our coffee, it is very, very, very rare, almost unheard of for folks to be eating, you know, like tablespoons of sugar, you know, sucrose. So there's a lot of complexity in trying to understand, well, what substance are we looking at here? What is the addictive substance we're trying to measure here? And then the other piece that hasn't really been understood is that there is right now no physiological marker for measuring addiction. So for instance, there has been some research that had some pretty inconclusive and, and not compelling results. Like, well, what if we looked at say, you know, glycemic load, or what if we look at impact on blood sugar levels or, you know, trying to find some sort of physiological measure that we could point to, to say, okay, if somebody has an addiction, when they eat 
a highly refined food, for example, this is what we see happens in the body. So there is right now no mechanistic link between a specific proposed food and a physiological change. So we can't really create a definition when the sort of core components of that definition haven't been able to be established yet. So as a result, a lot of what is being studied and looked at has less to do with a specific substance or less to do with a specific physiological marker and more on drawing some assumptions and looking at perception. And so what is, for example, a person's stated experience of feeling quote unquote addicted or feeling quote unquote out of control or feeling compelled to eat a food. Now, As I said in the very beginning, that experience is important. I don't want to diminish the experience, but it's not something that we have a way to sort of standardize and measure as it relates to what's happening inside a person's body. So there can be different explanations in terms of what is leading to this experience of what feels out of control or compulsive. And so that's where there's some pretty significant debate in terms of what's leading to this experience. Is it actually an addictive process or is there something else happening that's leading to this experience that can feel addictive like to a person? Yeah. What could be an example of what you mean in terms of what could lead to this feeling? Sure. Yes. Yeah. And I think we'll probably spend, we'll probably spend a fair amount of time here. So those who are proponents of the food addiction model would say there is something in, you know, an actual substance that's creating neurobiological changes. Like we look at a a brain scan and we see areas of the brain related to pleasure that are amplified, say, when a person eats a a quote-unquote highly addictive food. So the proponents of a food addiction model would say there's something happening actually with the food that's being consumed. But when we break it down a little bit more and we look at those brain studies and we look at the neurobiological research that this is rooted in, the picture becomes more complicated. So the original studies were done on rodents and the rodents were restricted. Their intake was restricted. So they had this sort of intermittent access to a sucrose solution. So essentially like sugar water. And what the researchers found out is that the rodents who had been restricted actually then when they were allowed access to the sugar water, had an amplified response in their brains. So the food or the sugar water became more compelling, more appetizing, more pleasurable. And that could look and feel like something that maybe feels compulsive, maybe something that feels sort of addiction-like. But the interesting piece is that when those rodents were compared to rodents who had not been restricted, but who had unlimited access to the sugar water, it was never taken away. We didn't see that amplified response in the brain. And so to me, that is like really, really, really important detail 
because when those rodents had unlimited available access and had never experienced it being taken away, had never experienced that deprivation, hadn't experienced that not getting enough, that amplification that would actually create a bigger draw to the sugar water just wasn't there. And while we want to be very, very careful in not drawing ever, you know, too much of a, you know, a sort of comparison between rodents and humans, because of course there's many differences between us and a rat. <laughs> Just a few. Yeah. But we can appreciate that there's, that's a really important piece of information. And, and I will say that while some studies on food addiction have been done on people. A lot of the studies that I think are pretty important and pretty foundational, of course, have, have been done on rodents. And that's true in terms of other substance use research. And so for us to think about, wow, what is the likelihood of somebody who's experiencing something that feels addiction-like, who maybe has a history of deprivation, of restriction, and then has maybe an amplified response. Now, I think it's interesting because there are so few people who haven't dieted. <laughs> so we think about doing that sort of comparison research. You know, how do we sort of, how do we control for that? You know, both sort of physical deprivation through dieting and also psychological deprivation just in terms of our own relationship to food. But if we think about it from an evolutionary standpoint, this for me makes a lot of sense. If we think about food being this imperative substance that we need. And if we go a time without getting enough of it or being restricted in some way, it is to me a beautiful mechanism in place that creates this amplified response in our brains so that we are drawn to it, so that we're actually getting enough, right? And it also makes some sense to me that there might be a bigger draw towards food that are metabolized very quickly, that create very fast access for blood sugar to, excuse me, for sugar to get up to the brain, you know, food and fuel that is accessible very, very quickly. So it's interesting and I think useful for us to kind of hold in mind this backdrop in the research that there's this big difference between rodents who had been restricted and had intermittent access versus those who had unlimited access and the very, very, very different neural responses that we see. But it also sounds like the properties of something that might have a lot of, for lack of a better way to describe it, refined sugar or processed whatever ingredients is that it's not so much that these are I guess for, again, for lack of a better term, addictive, it's that they're specifically designed for quick energy and that our brains actually want that. And so it's not going to go for the thing that will take a little bit of time to digest because in our minds, we got to get this energy now. And so that's the thing that we go for. Right. Well, and it's interesting too, because, you know, we, we learned this in nutritional science is that different foods when they are digested do create certain changes in our body chemistry. And I would like to think that there are ways to appreciate this in a way that doesn't assume it's a negative or doesn't assume some sort of pathology, right? That when we eat carbohydrates, especially on their own, it actually creates an increase 
in serotonin and serotonin is a neurotransmitter that can elevate our mood. It's sort of like we kind of think about it as a pleasure hormone. And so it's not a huge stretch to me that we have come to find certain foods that maybe have a little bit more of a neurochemical sort of, you know, happy lift can feel more compelling. And the interesting thing is that when what we see not only in the rodent research, but we also see this in different kinds of food-related research in humans, is that for folks who have maybe a less complicated history with deprivation and dieting, and there's been less interference there, that on the whole most people are able to negotiate lots of different foods and they're regulated just fine. The trouble being is that we have so much interference at this point that starts from a very young age where we get messaging about good and bad and food being polarized and food being off limits and food being limited. You know, it's interesting because I even negotiate this with my three and a half year olds in terms of sort of, I want him to have this sort of free and flexible relationship with food. And there are also times, you know, where he's asking for chocolate and chocolate's maybe not necessarily on the menu for breakfast this morning, although I do have chocolate waffles for him, right? Like you're sort of figuring out as a parent, sort of how do I cultivate a more easeful relationship with food and also appreciate, you know, that it can, it can feel a little tricky sometimes. And so, you know, we have all of this built-in interference culturally, and this tends to be amplified for larger bodied folks who are typically receive a lot more interference and a lot more heavy pressure and a lot more messaging around needing to diet. So often this restraint and restriction and this sort of moralizing of food is, you know, begins from such a young age and is really, really normalized. And so it's really reasonable that not only from a physiological standpoint, but also from a psychological standpoint, the more we think of foods as I shouldn't and don't, they have this more sort of alluring kind of compelling draw. So I often give kind of the the silly example, but most people are familiar with this. If you've been around a very young child, say even like a one, two-year-old, that they can have a bunch of toys around them. But if they see your phone, they will ignore all the toys and go right for the phone because they know the phone's going to be pulled away. No, no, yep. no, not playing with mommy's phone, right? That that's very, that's just like human nature for most of us, right? So we have kind of built into us often from a very young place, this kind of complex negotiation of foods that are labeled bad and that might have, you know, some, some neurochemical responses in us that might feel kind of good layered on top of dieting. And it's no wonder that there is this fraught experience of feeling like I can't control food or I'm out of control with food or, you know, Marcy, you have to believe me that when I have ice cream in my house, like I have to eat all of it until it's gone. I can't just have a little bit. And that, that all makes it, that all makes complete and total sense. Yeah. I think sometimes this is probably, I don't know if this is your experience too, but the psychological reason is less compelling to some people where it's, they're looking for some sort of physiological, neurological response. No, no, no. You don't understand. This is what's happening in my body and my brain. And when we bring in the psychological piece, not that it's any less valid, but sometimes it almost feels like a less valid 
response when it's being received. It can't just be that I'm restricted and that's why this is happening. And I guess, you know, maybe I'll ask you what your response is, but I guess part of where my mind goes is that it's both. Yeah. I think that, you know, when we're having these conversations and I have these conversations a lot with individuals is that I really try my best to understand what the person's experience is and make lots of room for us to know and not know things together, right? Because I can't, as a provider, say, well, sort of, you know, 67% of your experience can be, you know, explained by this and another 20% is likely this. And so what is it like for us to be in the discomfort of not really knowing together, but knowing that something isn't feeling right, something isn't feeling good. And here's what we've learned, maybe always speaking to a client's lived experience. Tell me how you've tried to manage this and what was that like? And what did you learn from that? And really using that as really, really rich information. And I don't personally, um, and maybe this is just my style or my personality, is that I'm personally not in the business of trying to convince anyone of anything. Um, That if someone was to say to me, Marcy, I know without a shadow of a doubt that I have a food addiction and the only way for me to manage that food addiction is by eliminating X, Y, and Z foods. And that has brought me, that has worked for me and brought me happiness for the past five years. I would say that is great for you. You have found a way to be in this complex world and complex food environment in a way that's working for you. And who would I be to try to sort of dissuade someone of that? More commonly in my experience is that folks go through cycles of having this really fraught experience with food and restricting and then finding themselves in this really chaotic place with eating and then sort of batten down the hatches and start with the restriction again. And it's usually this really kind of cyclical, frustrating, demoralizing experience. And to your point, some people feel really affirmed by saying, hey, this isn't my fault. This is this substance, right? And being able to sort of locate it in a substance. And I just tend to come at it a little bit differently. And, you know, I can offer that and share my perspective, but also feel really, really open and non-defensive to people finding lots of different paths to healing. So I don't know that I exactly answered your question. I kind of rambled on a bit, but... No, I think that's very helpful. Complicated. Yeah, I think really so often, especially in the intuitive eating versus, I'm air quoting here, dieting world, it has become a really big argument as opposed to a really big conversation. And if we're of the the mind of let's talk, let's see if we can understand this better. I don't need to convince you. That's not my prerogative. It doesn't almost matter to me. Let's try to get at something that I feel is true, that you can respect, that we can learn something more from each other as opposed to let's have this as a debate. And I'm going to convince you that my way is the way. Yeah, totally. I think that this is where things can sometimes get a little bit... I think that... Well, let me back up. 
I think that there are a lot of upsides to social media. I think that there are ways in which we get to put information out there and share messaging in a way that's a lot more accessible. I think that we wouldn't have the number of people interested in pushing back against dieting, pushing back against these sort of like narrow body, you know, quote unquote body ideals. I think that there, we wouldn't have as many people understanding that BMI really is not a a relevant measure of health. So I think that there's some utility in social media. I think where social media tends to break down is that it's really not a platform for thoughtful dialogue or much nuance, right? I mean, even think about, you know, you try to create a sort of snappy sentence that is going to look, you know, good on a pretty image and you miss a lot of the nuance. And so I, I do believe that there is, there tends to be much more thoughtful dialogue and nuance. I guess I want to believe this between clinician and client, as opposed to these sort of like hard lines in the sand, you know, that if someone says to me, I have many clients who said to me, I'm thinking of one client in particular, Marcy, my experience when I eat ice cream is similar to what I feel when I get high. I feel as if I am taken to another place. It feels really, really good. I feel disconnected and it feels like getting high for me. So of course I'm going to honor that. I'm not going to say, well, you just need to be able to eat ice cream intuitively and you just, it's just unconditional permission to eat. I mean, that's absolutely absurd. We worked for a very long time together and she did, I will say she developed a very different relationship to ice cream, but there was a lot of nuance in there. Yeah. That's an important piece that everything is about nuance. And then we can go in so many different tangents on each sentence. So a lot of this is take it with a grain of salt and understand that there's so many different layers to it. I don't know if you know much about this. This just popped into my mind a little bit ago. Is there any complication in this conversation when we talk about fake sugars? Oh, you know, that's actually really, really interesting. I will say that I am less up to date on the research of artificial sweeteners and sort of how do we understand that? What I do know, I don't know in terms of specific research on the addictive quote unquote quality of artificial sweeteners. What I do know is that they are designed to be very, very sweet and are often measured like on a sweetness scale as being much sweeter than typical table sugar. But in terms of how, what we see happening on like a neuroimaging standpoint, if somebody was to have artificial sweetener as, you know, compared to something that was made with sucrose and what the differences would be. I'm actually not sure on that. It's actually a really good question. I don't know that I've ever been asked that before. Yeah. I'm just thinking about either people swapping it because they do feel like they have a sugar addiction or people swapping it because it's maybe safer for them. It feels safer to have it. And then I'm sure that there are different responses in the brain to it and and the body. I mean, they're obviously very different in terms of their makeup. Yeah. It's really interesting. Actually, it's like, it's a great question. You're going to have me thinking about this. You know, I, I like to think of myself as a pretty open person. So if someone said to me, Hey, Marcy, this is, I feel so out of control when I'm eating the high sugar foods or, you know, whatever it is, high carb foods. And I want to figure out a way to feel differently. Like what if I tried, so I did this food experiment. Oh my gosh. I will never forget this years ago with a client who was trying to work on her relationship to baked goods. And so she brought in 
muffin for us to both eat together that was low carb and filled with a bunch of artificial sweetener. I will say I personally do not like the taste of artificial sweeteners. Like I'm not a diet soda drinker. I I just, it is very aversive to me, but I was like, all right, taking one for the team. So I was eating, eating this like really not appetizing. I thought I should have just told her she could have brought me a regular muffin. But if someone said, you know, Marcy, I think a way to help me get there is to have something that's made with an artificial sweetener that sort of freaks me out less. Like, I feel like I can handle that more. I'd be like, let's try it. Let's sort of see what we learn. You know, is their ultimate goal to, you know, it's all about what the client's ultimate goal is. Are they wanting to be able to eat, you know, walk into a, you know, a cafe and order whatever muffin? Is that the ultimate goal? Can we see if this sort of takes us steps towards getting that there? Like, sure, why not? Like, that doesn't harm anything. But you know, what I do see is as an eating disorders expert is that mostly people are really miss my clients are misusing artificial sweeteners when huge amounts are going into, you know, a beverage or they're kind of using it to suppress their appetite. Another side interest of mine is digestive health. And that's what I've learned a lot more about in terms of artificial sweeteners, which is yeah, that that's a big one. <laughs> very, very, very rough on digestive health. They create a whole host of problems from a, a, a digestive standpoint. So, you know, if somebody said, Hey, I want to just sort of do a swap and sort of see what I learn. And is this sort of help me on my way? I wouldn't take issue with that. I'd say, Hey, great. This is an experiment. Let's see what we learn. But that's, you know, that's a really different than somebody who's maybe eating large amounts because they're so afraid of eating regular sugar or, it's sort of this way in which they can consume large amounts of food and not feel guilty about it. Don't get me started on Halo Top. Um, so it's all about sort of what's the intention behind it? What's the experience? What's actually happening? Um, but it, I think it's a great example because it sort of speaks to how important it is to not be overly rigid about it. Yeah. I was actually just thinking something in terms of how science might be woven, general science woven into the sugar piece. Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know if this is accurate, but I think the CDC recommends that kids under two not have any sugar. Not that that actually happens, but I was like, I'm a dietitian and a mom of a three-year-old. And I was like, oh, I didn't know that my son definitely had sugar. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, obviously there's so much weight stigma and all that stuff woven into policy, et cetera. But is there, is there something backing that up? Like, why would they say that? Yeah, no, that's that's actually a really, really good question. And it's so fascinating that you asked this because I saw a comment in a forum recently and my colleague, Cara Harbstreet, who's a fabulous dietitian, actually wrote a response that was very educational for me because I actually am someone who, because I am so drawn to the experience and the relationship and how that, that weaves into science, I'm not a policy person. I tend to not get into the weeds of you know, the CDC recommends 10 teaspoons and this is how it translates into blah, blah, blah. I'm just like, oh my gosh, I actually (laughs) find that those kinds of recommendations to be completely detached from a person's of any day-to-day lived experience and almost irrelevant. Oh, totally. Are you counting? That's been two teaspoons. I know. I know. I'm like, (laughs) how many teaspoons in my English muffin with peanut butter and honey this morning? No idea. But what Kara shared, if I understood her correctly, is that these recommendations are actually built around really centering ideally how much nutrition ideally is a person getting from things like legumes and whole grains and fish and fruits and vegetables. And that you sort of 
center your nutrition around that. And that the sugar recommendation is sort of based on kind of what's left over. So if a human needs in general X number of calories and we sort of fill up on all of the kind of foods that are kind of building and physiologically quote unquote advantageous, then we have this room for kind of play foods and the recommendations kind of formulate around that. How they got there is not clear to me. That's not something that I've researched. I couldn't speak to. What I will say as someone who is a nutrition professional and an eating disorders professional and someone who thinks about this even from a global scale is that I actually think that our bodies are quite resilient and there is far more flexibility built into what a body needs to thrive. And when we think about the way that food is accessed and eaten in so many different cultures across the globe, that it's hard to imagine that the way it's gotten formulated within the CDC is, I think about anything that's a public health recommendation as sort of maybe generally instructive, but not specifically instructive, if that makes sense. We're sort of looking epidemiologically as opposed to the person sitting in front of me. I, I, I'm sure I'm biased and shaped by my, of course I am by my own lived experience, but I was a kid who was raised on Eggo waffles, school lunches and casseroles. And, you know, (laughs) I, I had the genetics, you know, I guess working to my advantage that on the whole, I wasn't raised in such a way that it, you know, reflected those CDC guidelines. And I think that that is true for the vast majority of people that their diets don't actually reflect those recommendations. It's not accessible for many, many people. It requires a lot of actual financial resources to follow that kind of pattern of eating. So, yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm thinking about kids being around other kids and the fact that if let's say you say, no, you're under two and you can't have the lolly, but all your friends and all your siblings can. There's already at such a young age built in this sense of deprivation that we can't isolate and say, but my three-year-old only has sugar. Well, what are the messages that your three-year-old is getting? Because, you know, they're very smart. They pick up on a lot. Oh yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. It's It's very, very complicated. And I think that it... Anytime we start talking about food recommendations, food policy, public health messaging versus where that meets the actual day-to-day and what it looks like, this sort of day in and day out, those kinds of recommendations, I don't think that this is their intention, but they often leave people feeling very guilty, very shamed, you know, not living up to the standard because it's not a standard that is actually... I think something that's lived out by the vast majority of people and likely not even the people who've written the guidelines. That's true. So say somebody is listening and they do identify with, you know, a food addiction or quote unquote sugar addiction. How would you recommend that they start, you know, working through this? Because like you said, it it is, you know, their lived experience is really powerful. And it's not just like, oh, (laughs) read the intuitive beating book and you're good. Yes, absolutely. So if I'm working with someone and I'm operating, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm operating with the assumption that they experience food in what they would consider to be a very addictive-like way 
but they're maybe exploring, is there a different way to unpack this? Is there a different way outside of sort of the, often the way in a quote unquote food addiction is managed, right? Is through just absolutely not eating that food, that that food is, is off the table. So somebody's saying, Hey, Marcy, I want to sort of explore something different, but every time I eat that food, I feel totally out of control. It sort of just kind of proves the point that I can't have that food. That tends to be sort of kind of the starting place. So where I tend to begin with a client is one, getting really clear on what it is that they're wanting to explore and work towards so that I am not unintentionally kind of projecting my own goal or my own desire for them. And I try to be quite, I'm a provider who operates with a lot of transparency. So I often overt that with a client, you know, that I will say, you know, I have some understandings and some beliefs and a perspective, but I don't consider my perspective any more valid than your perspective. So I'm, I'm going to be always checking in around sort of what is it that you want versus the perspective that I might be coming from. And I want you to know that your voice and your intentions and your goals are what are driving the bus here and are, and are what's most important. And I'm kind of belaboring this point a little bit because it's really, it's a really, really, really important one. Because even if we think about it dynamically, if we think about a person's sort of fraught relationship with food, a person kind of having a history of someone coming in, telling them what to do, how to be, what the right way, I really don't want to duplicate that. You know, I have a perspective to offer, I have clinical experience. Um, and that we can bring that in and they can consider it, but ultimately it's about what they want for their own selves and we can experiment together. We can sort of put our brains together. So just from the outset, it's really important that whoever it is that's sort of working on this, whether they're working with a provider or not, is has plenty of room to feel like they're in charge. And I think that's pretty central. And then from there, what I spend a lot of time on as a provider is making sure I've gotten a history. And this is something that folks can actually do on their own. They don't have to do it with a provider where they're just reflecting on what's it been like for me to live in relationship with food? Sort of what messages have I gotten externally from as far back as I can remember about food, about my ability to regulate food, my ability to trust myself with food. And often in my line of work, people are really, it can be very shocking to see the depth and breadth of messages that have been about you can't trust yourself. You have to have these rules in place. You need to have these constraints. And so just doing that unpacking and sort of, it's kind of what I call like turning the light on in the room rather than sort of muddling around in the darkness. We're having a real appreciation of sort of what's the scaffolding that's been built over all of these years. And then from there, one of the places that we might go, and this can happen, it's not necessarily linear, it's quite messy. It can go in lots of different directions depending <laughs> on sort of the conversation, you know, as a therapist, nothing's linear, is that I try to help them get curious around what are the different factors that are present when a person 
feels chaotic with food or feels like food doesn't go well, or sort of they're eating in a way that feels compulsive or addictive. And I try to help them get really curious about, okay, what were you eating? What were the thoughts that were going through your mind about what you were eating? What environment were you in? What was your sort of emotional state? What were your stress levels that day? Were you alone? Were you with someone else? What was the portion of the food? What had you eaten that day? Were you hungry? Were you not hungry? And just unpack, unpack, unpack like you wouldn't believe. And we tend to find some core similarities around what I call creates vulnerability. So being overly hungry can create vulnerability. I mean, certainly does for me. You know, if I'm starving and I come home and I've had a stressful day and I'm absolutely starving and no food is ready, there's a giant bowl of peanut M&Ms, the likelihood of my eating a huge amount of peanut, you know, peanut M&Ms and not feeling very hungry for dinner and then feeling a little, oh, like I kind of wish that hasn't how the evening went. Like high probability, right? So like knowing what your vulnerabilities are is really important. And then we can start crafting some different food experiments to build neural pathways where the experience with food is different. And it's positive as much as possible. It's confidence boosting. For some clients of mine, they learn that they actually do much better when they have an abundance of food around and just having an abundance really helps with that scarcity part, that sort of scarcity piece that can drive the overeating. Now I've had other clients where that is not at all where we start. And they say that is just entirely too overwhelming for me. It's too flooding. I want to sort of start on baby steps. And so we start building these little experiments with the hope that they can have a positive experience with food rather than something that feels like a repetition and proof of sort of, see, I can't be trusted. So it's funny, I've had some clients who want to start with their most challenging food, other clients who want to start with maybe something that doesn't feel quite as challenging that maybe they've kind of handled okay in the past. But it really is a collaborative process. It's something that is going to be, you know, very much driven driven by by my client. And I treat it as like a series of experiments where we learn. And then along the way... Let me pause you just for a second. When you say baby steps, what would that look like? Look like? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. I don't know why in this conversation, I'm thinking of all my ice cream examples, but I'll give an ice cream. (laughs) I just had coffee and ice cream for the first time today. And I can't believe I haven't tried it earlier. (laughs) Oh gosh. That sounds good. Yeah, that sounds like a revelation. So I had a client who I worked with for a long time and her big thing, and I understand that not for everybody, it might not be located in in a certain food. So I really want to make room for the fact that some of these examples really might not resonate for many of you and that's okay. But for the sake of an example, she really wanted to work on ice cream. And she found that when she had like a half gallon of ice cream in the house, she would have her dinner, she would eat well during the day. And then it just without fail, she would find herself eating, you know, most, if not all of the, whatever the portion was that was there. And so she said, you know, Marcy, what I really want to do is only buy one of the sort of really small, I don't even know the serving single, bring it to my house and slow it down where I will finish it 
you know, the idea of saying, just stop halfway through or when you're blah, blah, blah. She was like, that is not where I'm living. And so enough to where it was a satisfying portion, but she would eat to the end and complete it. And she did that for months, 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 months. And she was able to be present and notice how does this taste? How do I like this flavor compared to this other flavor? And we had to slow it down to help her to notice that there was a really intense narrative happening in her mind as she was eating that she had only been vaguely conscious of that was really like a foot on the gas with the ice cream. So slowing it down, helping her to become aware and mindful of what was the dialogue in her mind? What was she sort of telling herself? And where did that narrative come from? Can she be an observer of that narrative rather than sort of reacting to it? It helped her make sense of why she was feeling so emotionally intense as she was eating it. But she was prior to our really slowing it down, not actually conscious that that was happening for her. All she knew is that when she was eating the ice cream, she was zoned out, numbed out, but there was a really big drive and compulsion. And so as sort of, we kind of unpacked it together. We realized that there was a lot happening kind of cognitively in her mind that was actually creating a pretty strong flooding of emotion that she historically had been sort of kind of a little bit numbed out, a little bit dissociated from. And so it took that. And so it did, it took, a that's, this might sometimes feel really discouraging to folks is that it took a really, really, really long time, but she had this sense. And this is where I always like to honor my client's instinct was it's not going to work for me to get three half gallons of different flavors of ice cream and just know that I have plenty For her, she needed a very long period of time of a small exposure to slow things down enough and help her to be less flooded when she was eating it. Yeah. I love that example because the one that we usually gravitate toward is there's this sense of deprivation or scarcity or restriction, and we have to create abundance and that's the answer. But like you said, the answer is different for everyone. And so just because someone said that that's the way that you should do it doesn't actually mean that that's the case. No, 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 no. I mean, there are a hundred different ways with a hundred different clients where I've worked on this with people. And I'm sure the same is, you know, the same is for you that I have these treasure trove of examples that I could share. And there are some similar threads in terms of how I approach it, which is by no means not the most helpful way to approach it for everybody at all, but looking at what's the history, what's the context, what are the different factors that are creating a particular set of experiences now, and how do we try it on a little bit differently and what do we learn? And it really requires the development of helping our clients be noticers, to be observers, to be curious, to come at it a little bit with like an, you know, archaeologist's mindset. And that takes a long time to cultivate because unfortunately what's driven into just about everybody, nobody's, I mean, this is no fault that this is your inner experience, which is a ton of self-criticism, a ton of self-loathing, around their sort of inability to manage food, really, really judgmental in our world. And so it takes a lot of learning. It takes a lot of modeling of curiosity and sort of just sort of, this is just information for us to work with and sort of experiment with. 
Yeah. And I also like to say that if this took your entire life to develop this sort of relationship with food, it isn't going to take overnight to quote unquote fix. And that it's a process that happens over time. And, you know, just thinking about how it was developed will help us, I guess, appreciate the process a little bit more because if it was a quick fix, it probably wouldn't last that long. Yes. And hopefully helps us as providers to steer away from insisting that a person's process needs to look a particular way because we think that that's like the quote unquote goal, or we think like, oh, intuitive eating looks this way that, you know, we also have to honor the fact that for many of our clients, their lived experience, one is probably vastly different than our own. And that those experiences have created, I use the word scaffolding a lot because it speaks to me in terms of the brain, neural pathways of experiences that have been built in over time. So what is tenable, manageable, desirable for a particular person may look and feel really different than ultimately what you're hoping for them. But not everyone needs to be this, I eat whatever I want, whenever I want. And I have this sort of free relationship with food. And that's wonderful for some folks to get there. But for people who have been you know, put on diets from the age of seven and have been given really harmful messaging, like that also lives in their bodies and they're going to learn how to live in relationship relationship to that differently. But I will tell you, you know, I'm thinking about a conversation I had yesterday, the client who, you know, is nearly 40 years old, long, decades of complexity in her relationship to food stemming from when she was very, very young. And she said, you know, this is going to be something that I negotiate, but I never would have dreamt the amount of healing and flexibility and freedom that I do experience. So I do want to say that I believe that it's possible to have a very different way to relate to food and that healing is possible. But I think that there's just has to be a lot of room for openness around kind of how we get there and what that looks and feels like for each person. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Marcy. I really appreciated this conversation. It was really interesting. Before I let you go, can you share with our listeners where they can find you? Oh, sure. Yes. No, thank you for having me here for this conversation. As you can tell, I'm a talker and I can, I can spend <laughs> lots of times in the, lots of time in these conversations, but I am, I'm fairly easy to find. So my website is marcyrd.com and I do, that's M-A-R-C-I-R-D.com. And I do have some freebies on there if folks are interested certainly no pressure, but you can go to, oh, you'll find it. I think it's listed as resources under both individuals and professionals where they have some free meditations and guides and things that might be useful. And then I'm also on most social media places, although not TikTok, I'm feeling the generational divide with my, my new associate was saying, have you ever thought about going on TikTok? And I was laughing. I was like, oh, this is where our 15 year age gap is really showing itself. So I am on most places on social media, Marcy RD, and so can be found there. Well, thank you again. Yeah. Thanks so much. You made it to the end. Thank you for listening. Every single one of your downloads means so much to me. If this conversation is leaving you wanting more, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. You'll have the opportunity to reply back directly to me over there. Can't wait to see you in your inbox.